Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. How you doing, Chris? I am so good right now, Rachel. How are you? I'm doing good. I just snapped and I realized like that was a weird thing I just did. <laughs> you guys can't see it, but it was totally dorky. You'll hear it. You'll hear the snap. You'll hear the snap. So today, Rachel, it is part time. It is time. We we missed it last week because we had other stuff to talk about, but we are coming back to it. AAC bingo. I'm really excited. So there's been a lot of build up, Chris, in our Facebook group because you and I have been going back and forth discussing who's going to win this bingo challenge. Um, mostly we've been communicating through gifts, which is pretty on brand for us. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of fun doing the, the kind of little bit of trash talking back and forth, but it's all in good fun. All in good fun, even though exactly. I'm Exactly. Let's, let's dive in. I have our scorecard. <laughs> our scorecard's ready. Okay. Current score, Rachel 19, Chris 24. The comeback is on, right? I'm ready. I'm ready for a comeback. Okay, so we left off with the free space, which was halfway through. But the next one on AAC Bingo is, and just to hold on real quick, in case people did miss the last one before I jump in here. I think it was the Carson Covey episode where we had the AAC Bingo. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that. Get out your scorecard and rate yourself. We are rating ourselves from either a zero, this is not us, to a uh, three, right? It's a one, two, or three. Yes, one, two, or three, and sometimes we give each other fours yes. <laughs> if we feel like we're exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here we go. So the first one is uh, oddly satisfied by laminating. Hmm. You know what's interesting about this one is I feel like I do get a sense of satisfaction from laminating, but I have to say that I've been trying to make my practice more digital. So it's kind of like very rare these days that I'm laminating things because if I can, I try to do things all digital. So I don't know, maybe like a one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you take that because mine is definitely a zero. I haven't laminated things in a while. I advocate for if you're going to laminate things, it's going to be a, maybe a student or a parent that you're going to ask laminate. Make it a job that, pe- that people do, like a parent volunteer. Um, I don't own a laminator at my house. Like I've, I know a lot of speech therapists that do. Um, but I, I, I also, years ago, I've said, well, the future is digital. Got to make it digital. That doesn't mean throw out the low tech. I'm not saying that. You need that as well. I hope I hope people know that. It's just I, I, I'm not the person that's going to be laminating things. And of course, I will do low tech all day long. Long, meaning, um, uh, I have a th- you know we have a three D printer here, and we make low tech materials that way. Um, it seems high tech, but really it's tangible, something you hold in your hand. Uh, and even printing in general, the thing before laminating, right, is printing. That is sort of my arch nemesis. I can never get it to print right. It doesn't line up right. It gets jammed all the time. It's sort of like my kryptonite. So I'm going to give myself a zero on the, I am not satisfied by laminating. Yeah. What's funny is that I, I actually interviewed, um, a woman, um, less waste SLP. I don't know if you guys remember from our Asha episode, but she was so cool because she had this little tiny spice jar and she's like, this is my waste for the entire year. And so I just, I love that idea. And I also agree, Chris, things are going digital. And so while low tech supports are absolutely essential for our students, 
anything beyond that, I'm like, how can I just like keep this digital and not have to waste the paper not have to, I also have a lot of struggles with my printer as well. <laughs> we have a love hate relationship. It's mostly hate because it never works when it's supposed to. Um, and then when it does work, I'm just, I'm really elated. So I guess I love it then. Um, but yes, I would agree. I think that lamination is just gonna eventually, I think be only for those low tech supports. Um, and especially now that we're virtual, you know, we don't need to be printing out tons of materials because we're not even able to share materials. Exactly. Exactly. All right. You ready for the next one? Yep. All right. This is SIG 12 member. So do you want to explain what SIG 12 is for people that don't know? Yes. So SIG 12 is the special interest group for AAC. So if you are a AAC fanatic, um, like Chris and I are, um, then you might join the special interest group. So, um, and, and the thing that I love about this the most is things like ASHA, they have like a luncheon, which is really nice. Um, so it's kind of like you have a place to, to know where you can find your people, your AAC people. Um, but yeah, so I am a SIG 12, 12 member. Are you Chris? I am. So how do we determine how long have you been a SIG 12 member? Oh, that's a great question. I don't really know. I mean, seven years. Whoa, seven years. Know. Seven yeah. years. That's definitely longer like that. than me. So you, you, you're gonna, you're gonna. I'll give myself a two here if you're gonna give yourself a three, because I've only been a member for about maybe two years, maybe three, somewhere in there. Uh, when I for years, you know, you, you've got. You've got choices you have to make, you know, financially. True. And SIG 12 costs money, and it adds it's more money towards ASHA after paying dues already. And uh, being in assistive technology, there's even more organizations that you might want to be a part of, you know, and that cost dues. And so at some point I just had to ask myself, how much do I pay to be in the profession? You know, um, <laughs> I'm already paying for my C's. I'm already paying for my Virginia license. Uh, and then I, these are organizations that I want to participate on top of that. Uh, and what what am I getting for my dollar? You know, uh, so, you know, as as years have gone on and I've gotten even deeper and deeper into AAC, the SIG-12 membership definitely has has paid off, especially because of the, the research that's shared in there and the perspective shared in there. Essentially, the discussion boards have been what I find most valuable. Um, so... So, but it's, it has definitely been late coming. It's not something I've, I walked out of grad school becoming a, a SIG 12 member and I, I, I became, I went to it. I won't say kicking and screaming because I always knew it was something that was valuable and I wanted to invest in. I just felt like I had to wait until I made a certain a dollar amount before I said, okay, now I can invest in this, you know? For sure. I think those things definitely add up. And there's like so many different places that we can put our money when it comes to our practice. And so just being strategic and, and making sure that you feel like you're getting value, right? So if you're just going to sign up, but you're not going to look at the discussion boards and, you know, it just doesn't necessarily make sense. So it kind of just depends on where you're at in your practice and things evolve over time. Sometimes you say no to something and then you circle back to it. Um, so I think it's just like being strategic about those types of things. Are you ready to move on to the next one? Yep. Do, do you have it pulled up, by the way? Do you know what's coming or are you just waiting no, for me to read it I'm just it like hoping that I am, you don't dupe me or surprise me or, but I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay. Yeah. No, no surprises. But here is the next one, right? This is a phrase you might not have heard before. So it's called inspires, not requires. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds familiar. Well, I mean, I think I have to win this round because that's my phrase. And as much as I know that you also adopt that 
philosophy, I feel like I should get bonus points. I think you should. So I think that might be a, a five for you and a four for me. Love it. Love it. I love how, how we're just like making the rules up as we go. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, and by the way, just real quick for people who are like, well, wait, 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 what does that mean? What does inspire not require mean? Well, it's funny. We just got off a, a webinar where we talked about it. Um, but essentially, you know, instead of thinking uh, through the lens of how can I make a child communicate with me? How can I try to get them to say what I want them to say? I kind of put the burden, if you will, on me. I need to create activities that are so engaging and so fun that kids can't help but to communicate about them. Um, so if a child's not interested in communicating, you know, I really take that on myself as the clinician to figure out how I can adapt my materials, my activities, uh, the environment, whatever it might be, so that they're really excited. Um, and it's just a fun phrase to remember, like, keep it fun. It shouldn't be, you know, work. It needs to be exciting, engaging, and inspiring. Okay, so the next one is nose device reps by name. Do you know your device reps? Yes, I do. Unless I feel like there's some turnover with some of them, so it's like hard, but yes, I do. Um, and have quite close relationships, I feel like. Um, it's also, I'm just like a networker, so I like to like be connected to people, and I also like connecting people who I think need to meet each other. Um, so yes, how about you, Chris? Absolutely. No, uh, very well, you know, gone to dinner with sometimes with them. Um, I see them at conferences. I feel free, free, I feel free to call them. In fact, um, Hey, after this recording, Rachel, I have to tell you a story and talk to you about a device rep that contacted me from Canada. So I not only do I know my device reps, but I know device reps from all over, um, who have asked us to participate in a little event. So I got to talk about that afterwards. Um, Amazing. All right. So let's give each other, what number do you think we should get? I don't know. Threes? Threes. I think we're threes with that one. Great. All right. The next one is fave podcast is talking with tech. Oh my gosh. Can we give ourselves tens? <laughs> yeah. We might each get 10 <laughs> points for that. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's like, that's why we, we were, you know, excited about this, right? It's because we felt like, wow, we really made it in the AAC field. We made it on AAC bingo. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic that it's on there. That is so great. And not just for us for, for talking with tech, but really for podcasting in general. I mean, that someone is thinking, oh, well, this is something that adds value. Podcasting itself adds value to my professional learning. And I feel so much th so that I'm going to put it on this bingo. That really speaks to this this modality of learning. And, uh, you know, I've been a big fan of podcasting for years. I know you have been as well. So to make it on here really means something. Yes, thank you. Um, so are we actually giving ourselves tens or is that a little extreme? Fives? Maybe extreme. Let's five. Just give us fives. If the scale is one to three and we're adding a five, we're already cheating by two. So. <laughs> All right. Fine. All right. The next one is, oh, this one's tough. You ready? This is CEU Junkie. Hmm. Okay. Well, I have a, a few responses to this. Mm, me too. I feel like we are CEU junkies because we're providing CEUs to a lot of people very frequently. Um, I also consume a lot of CEUs. So I feel like that's kind of, I think to be a good presenter of CEU content, you need to watch other presenters and see the kinds of materials that they're presenting and the kind of topics that they're talking about. Um, so I'm just always curious, especially for this podcast. I feel like part of the reason we, you know, 
get the comments from our podcast is like, wow, like such a great resource, all of these really wonderful things is because we're kind of on the pulse of what's happening in our community. And I think in order to do that, we have to really kind of have like our eyeballs on all the different things and the moving pieces. Um, and so I would definitely give myself a three for that one. Yeah, I for all those same reasons, I agree. I think I'm a three. It's the term CEUs. Um, that sort of means something to different people like it's something you pay for uh to me it's just learning we're learning junkies you know not necessarily i need con uh, continuing education units to measure my worth to some sort of organization rather it is just we love learning and yes if i have to prove to an organization that i that i am doing learning then yes i will show you all the different uh avenues that i try and do that in all the conferences i go to the webinars i participate in both as a presenter and as a uh, as a just as a participant you know um so yeah i am i am a i am a junkie of learning yes yes i would agree with that for both of us all right so that's threes threes each and then here comes the next one you ready yes all right all about that core threes both of us i'm answering for you yes easily threes we've been core vocabulary advocates for a long time uh, so I don't even know what we need to talk about that. This whole podcast talks about core vocabulary. <laughs> exactly. Just listen to every episode we've ever done. And we've probably said core vocabulary at least once. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the next one. Ready? Takes the term bag lady to a new level. <laughs> I'm just thinking about you as a bag lady, Chris. So I'm really curious to hear how you're going to answer this one. Um, you know, what's so funny is that I'm actually made fun of in my family and friend circle because I refuse to use bags even when it makes sense to do so. So like I'm the person who's carrying all of these things that could very easily all be put into a bag and make my life so much easier. But instead, I'm carrying them. Um, so I actually don't. I can't identify with this idea of being a bag lady. Um, again, it goes back to my minimalist tendencies. I also just tend to not have a lot of stuff and not bring a lot of stuff when I'm doing therapy. Um, if I'm going at home and then, you know, I'm not really using a bag if I'm in my office. So I would say like, I don't know, one. All right. Well, I think that beats me. I, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. And then we can decide together what my score can be. Because um, first of all, the fact that it does say lady, and that is a nod to all of the, the the fact that there are very few men that work in the field of speech language pathologist. So when you get to special education, you have more men, you know, than you do just in speech language pathology. And of course, we have a listenership that is beyond speech language pathologists. But it does seem like this was made by a speech language pathologist. And so it's thinking about, you know, women primarily being the uh the the gender that is primarily doing um that sort of work that said i can't really talk about it rachel but there is sometimes well i just hello gentlemen and i'll just leave it at that i can't talk about that, anything more than that because i don't want to get kicked out of the special clubs that, that exist but <laughs> so 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 a nod to all the speech language pathologists who are males hello everybody <laughs> so now to the bag component of that um there are um uh i do have bags here and and i have lots of bags just here in the closet sitting there sh shoved into a fold into a closet i can't tell you or into the closet into the corner of the closet i can't tell you how many times i've ripped apart those bags to make shoulder straps rather than buying shoulder straps for kids with aac devices so in that regard yes you know using that um that macgyver-esque as aspect of i'm going to use what i got i know i'm not going to 
convince somebody to buy me a strap, but I'm gonna, I can make one out of this, uh, out of all these bags I've gotten from conferences. I've taken all the bags I get from conferences and they become my grocery bags, right? And the family uses them uh, yes. for that purpose because they're often, uh, you know, this way we, don't, we can be sus- sustainable. Um, so in that regard, but, and I guess the last thing is, I think if you were to see me at any particular conference, I do carry a backpack all the time. It's pretty, like you, minimalist. You know, there's my laptop and iPad and a water bottle in there usually. Um, maybe a stack of um, bookmarks to give out to people that like, hey, who are you? Well, this is my bookmark, um, as, as opposed to a business card. Um, but that's it. That's what my bag is for. It's I don't carry, because I'm not doing direct therapy, I'm not carrying a lot of stuff, therapy materials. And even if I was, though, we've already talked about with the laminating that we are mostly not carrying stuff from place to place. We are using digital materials. For sure. So right. What do you think? So, I, would, I don't know. One? One? All right. We'll tie there. One. One. Great. What's next? All right. The next, there's only a couple left. So we're okay. getting down to it. All right. I need I, to, if I was better at math, I would calculate our scores, but it's going to take me a second. Well, I will wait before the very last one so we can. Thank uh, you. We're, we'll, you. We'll pause the recording to allow for my processing time and then we'll, we'll restart and I'll give you the answers. Okay. So the next one is accepts all communication. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I was like hundred <laughs> percent and then I'm going to second. That's not part of the scoring rubric. Um, I think for three, for sure. Yeah. I think we're both threes here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, uh, the, what that means accepts all communication is if a student attempts to communicate verbally, then we accept that and we might expand upon it or reflect upon it using AAC, but we're definitely going to, um, take what that student said and we are going to then, you know, react to it. Um, if they are signing, then we accept the sign. If they are using uh, gestures, then we accept that. Um, but we're always trying to expand upon it. Yeah. And oftentimes that's a huge question I get from teams is, well, what happens if they sign? Should I have them say it on the device too? And I said, no, <laughs> because we, none of us like to say something and then have to say it again and have to say it again and have to say it again. Um, and so what you can easily do is say a student, you know, signs all done then go to the device and model, oh, you're telling me that you're all done. Okay, like let's go do something different. Um, No expectation that they have to use the device. Sometimes kids will imitate the model and they'll say it on their device, but we don't have to, you know, require that. And um, it's a really great way to show them. You can tell me with a sign or you can tell me on your device. Either one works. All right, you ready for the next one? Yes. This one is relies heavily on password managers. Oh my God, 100%. I like, uh, it's like a running joke in my business that my business manager like has the keys to my identity essentially. So like anyone's like, oh, what's the password for this? Because, you know, I have a team of people helping me create content, resources, post on social media, all the things. And I'm like, I have no idea. Just ask Lauren. (laughs) So shout out to Lauren, my girl. She literally has every single password that we would ever need to run my business. Um, And she is my password manager. I also have for my own personal use, I have, um, what is it called? It's a website that you use. Yes, LastPass. That's what it is. Exactly. I can't even remember my password manager. (laughs) It's a problem, guys. Well, so this is something I've really thought about investing in, and I, people have ta- told me, you know, re- repeatedly, and uh, to to use one. Um, 
Google Chrome has one built into it. And since that's primarily what I use, I sort of, you know, it's always kind of, hey, do you want to use a strong password here? Sure. And we remember it. Yes. So that's kind of what I rely on, but I have been thinking about it. So I'm going to give myself a one here um, because I just rely on the built-in tools. I'm not actually paying for anything, you know? Yeah, I like, I think it's so important because now, especially because everything's super digital and people are just sitting in front of their computers. Um, I always uh, think about, you know, those kind of like those really important ones, like your email, for example, someone has your email address and your password somehow figures out your password. They can literally do anything, right? They can change your bank account you know, log in and all these things that go through either our cell phones or our email addresses. And so especially with those ones, you just want to be super careful um, just so that, you know, you're changing them. They're, you know, not easy things like, you know, your birthday or one, two, three or something like that. All right. There's only two left. Yikes. Okay. All right. Here we go. The, the second to last one is subscribes to practical AAC. Yes. Absolutely. And also have written articles for Practical AAC. Does that give me bonus points? I think it, both of us have written articles for Practical AAC. Um, and so, yeah, I think we get bonus points there. Uh, fours? I think we're both three. Yeah, let's say fours. Let's fours? say fours for us. Sure, Great. sure. In fact, uh, the video, some, some Good AAC News, was just featured there on Practical AAC. So that's pretty awesome. I know. Did you see their last episode, Chris? The most I recent. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, we totally could have been featured. It was like the community episode. I know we were watching it. We, matter of fact, we watched it last night. And as uh, so, for people that don't know what we're talking about, John Krasinski, the actor, uh, put out a uh, eight episodes on YouTube for free called "Some Good News," where he just reports on good things happening in the world. And it's a cute little fun internet show with the artwork from his kids, and it's just he brings in other celebrities, and there's always like a little surprise. And so I did a quick parody video to help talk about the COVID speak app that was produced by Brian Whitmer and Bill Binko, which we, you've heard us advertise that on the podcast in the past. Advertise it. It's free resource. We're just helping promote it. So, um, so John Krasinski's the last episode, or for now, as episode eight, and the community episode is all of these people who have done spinoffs or parodies of Some Good News. And so my family and I were watching it last night, and we we're like, oh, is ours going to show up there? Is it going to be there? It wasn't on there, but that, that's okay. I'm sure there's lots that, that weren't on there. I know. I was waiting. I was like, I wonder, like we did a spinoff. You think that, you know, it would be featured, but I'm sure there was like so much to choose from. And yeah, they probably have a, a lot. I mean, he has like millions of people following that show now. So it's, um, it's definitely worth checking out. Actually, you reminded me, I just spoke with my grandma the other day on the phone and I was telling her about that. And I actually have to send that to her via email because she's like, I won't remember. Can you send it to me? And so thank you, Chris, for reminding me that I need to send that to my grandma. Okay. Let's tally up the points because here's the last one. All right. Let's see how fast I can do this. I think you did. You you had a little bit of a comeback here, Rachel. Great. All right. I came into the lead. I was coming into this episode in the lead, but I feel mm -hmm. like you you were pulling in from behind. It's probably neck and neck coming across yeah. the finish line. I mean, I, what's really hard, I think I need to use a calculator just because I can't be trusted. <laughs> Chris. Yes. We're, we're tied. We're tied at we're tied at fifty three. We are tied going into the last one. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't know what the last one is. I'm nervous. Okay. Well, you could pull way, way ahead here uh, on this one, or maybe not. Uh, we'll have to see. Ready? Mm hmm. The very last one is USB drives are key. USB drives are key. I don't know. I mean, that's a hard one. Like, I always have, when I'm presenting, you know, in person, I always have a USB with my presentations on it. Um, but that's the only, that's the only reason I use USB drives now. But I still, it's like, it's like this weird, like, anxiety that I have. They're like, I'm not going to be able to access my slides um, or it's not going to work or something is going to happen. I won't have internet access, which actually at one of one of my presentations, I had to use my USB drive. Um, so I don't know, like because I do it religiously for every single in-person presentation, maybe a two. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, I... <laughs> Why are you laughing? Are you laughing because you know you've won? No, I'm, uh, <laughs> just the opposite. Because years ago, I made the decision to stop using USB drives except for one purpose. And that purpose was to transfer vocabularies from certain AAC devices. So do I carry one in my backpack? Yes. Do I always have one available? Yes. Does it have all my old stuff on it if I need it? Yes. But uh, I don't know, almost 10 years ago could be, I decided I was going all cloud-based and I started saving everything to the cloud. Um, that And, you know, that, that's not to say that, uh, you know, you know, all my slides are Google Slides, but I also download them usually as PowerPoints and save them on my desktop if I need them because I'm presenting from there. Mm -hmm. So USB drives are key. First, I would question... Do it, does, should it even be on here? As it, it's true. So, it's true in 2020. If, um, but but it is on here. Those are the rules. I'm gonna give myself a one, Rachel. I made a comeback, everybody. It's really compulsive what I do with USB drives and not necessary probably, but I think like my biggest anxiety as a presenter isn't that I won't know the material or like it's nothing like that. It's always tech stuff. I get so stressed because I've had some situations where, you know, my microphone doesn't work or, you know, just at one point, I don't know if I ever told the story, Chris, but I was presenting, I think at ASHA and someone, one of the tech guys had left uh, his walkie talkie on my podium. And so it was just like, I was in the middle of presenting and all of a sudden it's like this walkie talkie goes off and it's like, you know, like, have you checked room 13? Like, it looks like they're having, you know, challenges. And I was like, I literally was so taken aback. I didn't even know what it was. And then I looked down and it was being amplified, right? Cause it was like hitting my microphone. And so then I took this, I took this remote, um, this remote, uh, like walkie talkie. And I feel like I was holding it like a bomb. I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. And so I took it and I put it like in the back of the room. I didn't want to put it outside the room. So I put it in the back of the room, like hoping that like it wouldn't interfere with the rest of my presentation. So anyway, just weird things have happened like that with tech glitches and stuff. So I'm like unusually paranoid about things going awry. Yes, those things tend to happen. When those things t happen to me, I my go-to is to lean into them. You know, like I would pick up the microphone, pick up the walkie-talkie and be like, eh, hello, I'm doing a presentation in room blah, blah, blah. Do you want to come get your microphone? <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. I know. We Once yeah. Beth Poss and I were doing a presentation and um, it was a pre-conference at uh, ATIA and a bird flew into the room. It was flying around the room while we were presenting. Uh, it was great. Wow. <laughs> uh, we always talk about... Uh, 
you know, the fact that human beings talk about things and communicate communicate about things that are novel, interesting, weird, unusual. Yeah. So I'm sure everybody was telling that story after the fact, like at their dinner table. Guess what happened when I was at my conference today? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You use that as an example to in your presentation. Uh, so what's the final score, Rachel? Final score. Rachel, 55. Chris, 54. Congratulations, Rachel. That is awesome. Uh, it was super fun playing with you. You won. I'm the AAC bingo champion. You are. You are the champion. Now, everyone else, score yourselves. We'd like to see your scores over on the Facebook group. Let us know how you did. Did you did you beat Rachel? Did you beat... Well, if you beat Rachel, you beat me. <laughs> it's true. Actually, I think we probably have the highest scores because we decided to bend the rules quite significantly. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to take a stab in the dark that no one beat us. <laughs> oh... Well, well, that was super fun, Rachel. I hope we get to do more stuff like this in the future. Definitely. So, Chris, let's talk about today's episode. Really excited. Britton Coleman, she is a uh, functional nutritionist. So she works um, almost exclusively with families of children with autism. And we talk in this interview all about the work that she does. Um, really interesting. You know, obviously, it doesn't have anything to do with AAC, but she works with a lot of families who, you know, obviously are working towards communication and she's had a lot of success. Um, I was telling you before we hit the record button that uh, she sees clients of mine and I've seen a lot of improvements. Um, children with autism tend to have uh, GI you know, issues and challenges. And when you start getting their little bodies working better, you know, you see behaviors decrease, you see attention increase, all these things, um, which makes sense, right? It's, it's a natural thing. Like when you are putting, you know, good nutritious food into your body, um, you know, and you start feeling better on the inside, you're able to, uh, and ready to learn. You perform better on the outside. Yep, exactly. Um, she also does a lot on social media, which is really great to, to kind of follow her social media account. She she helps families with uh, kids who have uh, really restrictive diets, meaning like they only eat like three different foods. Um, so she gives strategies on how to, you know, expand a child's palate and to try get them trying lots of different kinds of foods because um, I know that can be a challenge for a lot of families so anyway it was a really great interview I was so excited to have her on we've been working you know as colleagues for a few years now and um, just really excited that she was able to kind of share her her expertise in the area of uh, nutrition and autism so without further ado let's head into my interview with Britton Coleman SpeechBlubs is an app that helps kids make sounds, then words, and then sentences with just 10 to 15 minutes of practice a day. The app has more than 1,500 fun activities for toddlers, preschoolers, and anyone with speech delays. SpeechBlubs was designed by speech therapists, parents, and kids too. Video models using actual kids are a big part of its main methodology. Video modeling is an evidence-based practice supported by copious amounts of research to help kids learn language. The embedded videos in the app show kids speaking. The app then invites them to imitate the video model. Parents know that hearing their child finally say mommy, either with their voice or AAC, is a true milestone. SpeechBlubs has more than 1 million downloads, proving that the app could be a great starting point. 
The subscription starts as low as $4.99 a month for the annual plan, which is a nominal investment to improve a child's speech and language abilities. Anyone can try the app for free for seven days, but as a listener of this podcast, Speech Loves is providing an extended trial for an entire month. Simply go to bit.ly backslash TWT Speech Blubs and complete the form to receive an extended trial. Also, if you're a Talking with Tech Patreon member before April 2nd, 2020, you will receive a free lifetime membership to Speech Blubs. Go to patreon.com backslash Talking with Tech to sign up. And check out speechblubs.com for more information about using this engaging and empowering app. That's speechblubs.com. Check it out today. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Britton Coleman. Britton, how are you? I'm so good. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited. This has been in the works for a while now. Britton and I met through a client of ours um, that we both work with remotely. Um, and she's doing amazing work in the autism world um, as a dietitian. So Britton, explain to our listeners who you are and how you got interested in what you're doing right now. I'm a dietitian based in San Francisco, and I do everything virtually. I work with kids on the autism spectrum. I work with kids with ADHD and a whole wide variety of developmental disabilities or disorders. And um, I am... I have a brother who's on the autism spectrum, so autism is very special to me, and I've um, always known that I wanted to do something with autism, and nutrition has always been something that's very important to me, and so um, in grad school and undergrad, I really started combining the two, and about three years ago, I started my own private practice, so beforehand, I was working in interdisciplinary in a disciplinary clinics. Um, I worked in Oklahoma City for a while, and um, yeah, now completely run my own telehealth profession for um, individuals with feeding issues, autism, sensory processing, biomedical issues, you name it. Well, let's kind of deep dive a little bit because the first time you and I got on a call together, it was like yeah. we were both geeking out hard in ways that I loved. <laughs> um, and because I'm very interested in nutrition and health, a lot of the clients that I work with in Los Angeles, they also are doing biomedical treatments for autism, um, specific dietary approaches. Um, so what have you learned about diet and autism? I have learned that there is not one diet that works for everybody. And it makes me so frustrated sometimes when the internet or whoever else just says, hey, this, this one diet is for autism or for you know everybody. And that just doesn't, that's not right. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's called autism spectrum for a reason. Everybody is so different. Um, they have a different genetic makeup, different biomedical makeup. They have um, so many different things going on internally, even a different gut profile. I mean, it just doesn't make sense for us to say that one diet works for everybody. And so I've really learned that we need to individualize all of these things. We need to do a lot of different biomedical testing, um, which I'll dive into like what that actually means in a second. But um, we really just need to make it individualized um, so that we can have the biggest impact. Because if we don't, then, um, you know, of course, they're not going to have the uh, response to nutrition that we know they can if we're using the wrong diet the whole time. You know, what this one specific diet, like the gluten-free, casein-free diet, helpful for some people, not every single person. So yeah, individualizing is what I've learned. 
So I've had families who have approached me and, you know, we start talking about maybe some biomedical interventions or things like that uh, for autism. And they've said, oh, we tried the gluten-free diet that didn't work. And it's almost Mm -hmm. as if like that was the diet they tried, it didn't work. And now it's like, well, you know, diets don't work for my kid. Like, What would you say to a family um, that expressed something like that? First of all, I would ask how long they tried it for, um, because sometimes diets take four to six weeks to start working, and sometimes even longer than that. And so I would ask, you know, what have you tried so far? How long did you try it? And then sometimes I just, I mean, you need to say exactly what I just said. Not one diet is for everybody, and your child might not have a gluten sensitivity, and that's okay. But of course, if they if they don't have a gluten sensitivity, they're not going to respond well. Um, to a gluten-free diet because it's not what's right for their body. And so mm-hmm. um, if they're not in the place to do testing, we, you know, the next step would be dairy-free diet. Um, there are a lot of different allergens that we can try, but you can't just roll it out diet altogether if, uh, you know, just one diet doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So that goes for anybody too. And and how how do allergens or potential allergens or food intolerances impact children with autism? Like, what is the correlation there for people yeah. who maybe don't have experience with with this idea? Definitely. So the first thing I always like to point out is that there's a difference between food allergies and food sensitivities and food intolerances. I mean, they're all different things and it's easy to get them confused or it's easy to just not even know that all of them exist. And so um, food allergies are often this immediate response where they're having an anaphylactic reaction, they're having hives. Um, Think of a peanut allergy, for example. You know, a lot of people can actually visualize what that looks like. Then we have um, sensitivities, which are more delayed responses. And these don't always show up on the outside. Some people will, um, you know, they'll experience eczema or maybe some other outward manifestations, but oftentimes it's more internal, causing internal inflammation, um, can cause brain fog, can cause cognitive issues, um, behavioral issues, mood dysregulation, Mm -hmm. a lot of things there. Um, And those are rooted typically in the gut. And kids with autism oftentimes have a different gut profile, meaning that they have different bacteria, yeast, um, I mean, just different GI function in general. Um, It it varies all across the board what's going on in there, uh, which is why I like to do gut panels to check in and see what actually is going on. Um, And then the last thing that we get confused oftentimes is uh, intolerance. So let's think of lactose, for example. So lactose intolerance is a good example of that because what that means is that we're lacking some digestive enzyme in order to break something down. So like lactose intolerance, you're missing an enzyme called lactase. And so your body literally cannot break down lactose because it's not equipped to do so. Um, And then that results in, you know, major GI discomfort and other issues because your body just can't break it down. Um, Whereas a sensitivity, your body is responding, it's breaking it down, but it's responding with inflammation. And so Mm -hmm. those are the different types of reactions to foods. And many people don't realize that there are multiple reactions. And so we really have to break it down. What kind of reaction are we having? Most of my clients that I see have sensitivities. Um, I think there's only 6% of uh, the population that has a true food allergy, and it's estimated that upwards of 50% have a sensitivity to a food. 
So Hmm. a lot more common. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, for a child potentially with autism who is either minimally verbal or, you know, does not have spoken words yet, cannot communicate how they're feeling, um, this could be an underlying trigger that's, you know, manifesting in a lot of different ways, Um, you know, whether that be not wanting to sit and follow directions, not being able to attend, having you know sensory seeking behaviors, not being able to regulate their emotions, like all of these things can manifest from something as seemingly simple. Now I realize it's not simple getting to the bottom of what these things are, um, but something as simple as you know the food they ate for breakfast that morning, um, right. and so it's like. I'm sure trying to get to the bottom of those things is challenging, but once you do, and if you can, you could see a lot of improvement. Absolutely. And there's a few different reasons why, um, you know, having kids that are nonverbal with food sensitivities makes it just exponentially harder because they can't tell you what they're feeling, like you said. And then sometimes, um, this goes actually for all kids across the board, sometimes they accept discomfort as normal. They don't really know what normal feels like. And so they take these, um, you know, severe GI pains or gas or whatever it is. And they just say, you know, this is my normal. And they don't really know what it feels like to feel good. Um, And so oftentimes they won't complain or they won't tell their parents that they're feeling this way. Um, Some kids also have a hard time actually identifying that they're in pain. I have so many kids on my caseload that have such high pain tolerances, mm-hmm. and sometimes they honestly just don't realize that they're in pain. So um, kids that are nonverbal, if they have a migraine, sometimes they'll you know, have head banging, which is a traditional autistic symptom. Um, they will push on their, their tummies, or they'll like, um, I've seen kids that will lay on like the corners of couches to get mm-hmm. that pressure on their tummy just because they don't feel very well. Um, I've, um, you know, seen so many kids even just trying to tell their parents that their stomach hurts, like putting their, their parents hand on their tummies because they can't say this hurts. Or, um, I actually had a recent client who was having his mom kiss his belly because they do that when they have boo-boos and he couldn't, he's nonverbal, but he knows that. And he's like, my tummy hurts. I need to kiss it because something's hurting. And so we just really have to watch out for the symptoms of food sensitivities or GI issues because kids nonverbal, they really can't tell you unless they are trying to in a very unique way. And I've seen a lot of the families that I work with, they go through this process of an elimination diet um, or a restrictive diet to try to rule out food sensitivities or food intolerances. And I have to say, I can't, I've tried it in my own life and it's Mm -hmm. hard and challenging. I can't imagine doing it with a child who's not able to communicate how they're feeling because so much of it is like, you know, okay, so we've eliminated a lot of things like the reintroduction of foods, right? That's where it's like, okay, like, you know, and it's hard to figure out, you know, is that okay? And, and oftentimes it's delayed too. So a reaction can happen a few days after a certain exactly. Um, and so it just feels so challenging. Um, what are some ways that you help coach families on, you know, starting an elimination diet? And is that the place to start? Do you feel like you should always do testing? Can families who are listening out there, um, can they do this on their own to see, you know, similar results? Like what's your, what's your, your best approach? Yes. So I always recommend doing it with the guidance of a registered dietitian. So Mm -hmm. whether that's me, um, or another dietitian in your area, 
if you're doing any diet changes or, you know, taking out certain foods or restricting certain foods, it's really important to have that professional guidance. So um, just wanted to plug that in there. Um, Mm -hmm. But it really depends on where you're at in your nutrition journey. So, um, and also the amount of foods that your child has. So let's say that a kid is operating out of a space of four or five foods and that's it, it's probably not the time to do an elimination diet because if three of their five foods are dairy um, Mm -hmm. and cheese, you know, we're just, they can't survive off of five foods. And so um, in that scenario, we really need to add before we take out because it's just not right to take out first. Um, And a lot of parents, (laughs) when I tell them that, they just have this huge exhale because Um, they're fearing that, you know, their child's not going to have anything to eat. And so when we do have those situations, I do recommend testing because it's a bypass of all of that elimination diet that you really can get an idea of what's going on. Um, And then when you're working on future foods, you know which ones to start with because you know which ones are not causing an issue. Um, Let's say that dairy was a major issue. You wouldn't want to try to get the next food to be yogurt because that's just Mm -hmm. not a good fit for their diet. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think testing is always great to start with because you're right, it can be confusing. Um, Sometimes symptoms pop up a few days late. They can, um, you know, I've even seen reactions happen 72 hours after. And so um, we really need to keep an eye on that. And it can also be combinations of foods or the dose of food that you're eating too. And so let's say that you have a moderate reaction to two foods, but you eat them together every time, it's going to create the severe sensitive or the severe uh, reaction. And then you take out one of the foods, um, you're not going to see, you know, the major changes that you're wanting to see because you're only taking out one of those things. And so sensitivity testing really gives us a better idea of what's going on, uh, really lays the blueprint on what we need to be addressing and what foods we need to be swapping out. So I always recommend doing that. Um, but again, if a, if a family isn't in the place to do sensitivity testing or they don't want to, um, that's valid as well. I mean, it's a blood test. So sometimes that can be a little overwhelming for younger kids. Um, and if they don't want to do that, then we can definitely walk them through an elimination diet in the right way um, because there are many ways to do it out there. Um, and so doing it in the correct ways for them, at least, is um, you know going to be important for them sticking to those recommendations and the elimination diet in general. You mentioned the kid that only has five foods. That's like every kid on my caseload, it feels like. Um, So like for those kids who are picky eaters, what are some strategies for that to try to increase the diversity of a child's diet? The first thing I say to parents is we got to meet them where they're at. Um, So if their child is only eating blonde crunchies, um, we can start with blonde crunchies, um, but we can work on the healthier options. We need Mm -hmm. to build trust with kids as well, because I've seen a lot of kids who have lost complete trust in parents who sneak foods into their, um, you know, their trusted applesauce or into their smoothies Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever else it is. And then they stop eating and they don't trust the parent and, We really need Mm -hmm. to build trust there. But the reason why most kids are such picky eaters, especially on the autism spectrum, is because of sensory processing difficulty. And so we need to work on um, taking it one sense at a time. I use a method called the SOS, method to feeding. And um, what that's based on is essentially taking each of the senses and starting with one at a time and using them as building blocks to get all the way up to eating. So there's actually about 30 different bullet points in between seeing a food for the first time and then actually consuming it. And so a lot of parents want to go from here's, you know, this food for the first time, 
eat it or just take a bite and the child is just not ready for that. And so we have to back down, we have to smell it and touch it and, you know, do all of these other steps so that they can be ready to eat that food. Because if we make them eat that food immediately, they're going to get stressed out. We have an adrenaline rush. Um, and whenever we have adrenaline rushes and we get stressed out like that, our uh, want to eat just plummets. I mean, whenever we're in that flight or fight mode, we're not supposed to want to eat. We're not supposed to be hungry. Um, we're supposed to get the heck out of there. And so um, it's important that we have a relaxing environment and that we can calmly approach mealtime in a very positive and encouraging manner um, instead of forcing them or bribing them or begging to eat a food. So um, got off on a little tangent there, but um, yeah, there's a right way to do it. And it, it takes time. It's not a, an overnight solution. You really have to take time to dedicate to it. And you spoke to the sensory processing angle, which I'm really interested in. So when you say the sensory processing becomes an issue with the food, it's less about the food itself and it's more about potentially the texture. Can you talk a little bit more about the sensory processing aspects of feeding? Definitely. So feeding is one of the most sensory rich experiences that we have as humans. We smell the food, we taste it, we hear the crunch, we feel the temperature, we look at it. I mean, there's so many things that happen at once. And so when you have a kid who does have sensory processing or is having a hard time, I guess just interpreting the sense, Mm -hmm. then if you're putting them all out at once, that child is going to be so overwhelmed because it's so many things all at once. And so we really have to break it down um, instead of exposing them all at one time. And I think I lost track of your question. Can you say it again? (laughs) I was just saying, talk about the sensory processing aspects of feeding and like what you're looking out for, like what parents Mm -hmm. can potentially do to help their child who's a picky eater. Yes. Okay. So um, we have to think about all the different senses that are coming from food. The most um, or the biggest issue that I see with kids who do have sensory processing issues is texture. Um, mm-hmm. Another one is color. I actually did my um, my grad school thesis on food aversions for kids with texture issues, um, sensory problems. But yeah, so it's important for everybody to take into account all those different senses and work on those foods that maybe they can tolerate right now um, and food chain. So if we start with a food that is yellow and crunchy, we can go over to another food that's yellow and crunchy, but maybe it's a healthier option like a veggie stick, for example. Mm. Um, And then from there, we can go to an orange one. And from there, we can go to a raw carrot stick, you know, something that is staying the same color, the same texture, um, but we're changing one of those properties each time. And so that's a part of SOS feeding therapy um, is food chaining. And I think that's something that's really helpful for many of the parents that I see to learn that food chaining process. Well, what's interesting is like, you always think when kids have food issues or food pickiness, um, you think it's about the flavor, right? You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, they don't like it because of this. And sometimes it doesn't make sense because we're like, but it's sweet. It's peaches. Like who doesn't like peaches? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? And so it's like so interesting to hear that it's, there's so many different aspects to why a child might be a picky eater instead of just like simple things like flavor and taste, which is what you would think of first naturally. Totally. And, and usually it's texture. That's usually the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the kids on my caseload like crunchy, salty, and neutral colored foods. Hmm. The blonde foods is what we call them. So Interesting. Um, at least when they come in. So think about that with your clients too, or for whoever's mm-hmm. listening, kids or um, you know clients on your caseload. Um, those blonde, crunchy, salty foods, 
They yeah, like and gold, I, goldfish crackers. Yeah, <laughs> mac and cheese is not crunchy, but it's uh, yeah. you know neutral and salty. Yeah, um, many different crackers, um, chicken nuggets, French fries. Hmm. I mean, interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Um, okay, so if uh, if you know, there's a lot of practitioners that listen to this, and you know, we don't necessarily do a lot of work with diet and feeding and things like that. But of course, like we sometimes interact with food if a child's really motivated by food. Um, you know, sometimes speech language pathologists they work on feeding and things like that. Um, you know, I'm interested in you know having you come on talk about your experience just to open our eyes to this idea that you know, diet can impact a child. Um, you know, it's crazy to think that something that we put in our bodies every day doesn't impact us in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just really interesting and eye opening to listen to your perspective, you know, and especially because oftentimes, um, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of judgment that could go alongside of, um, parents who are trying alternative, you know, biomedical treatments or, um, dietary changes and things like that. You know, have you experienced that in your practice with the families that you work with? Cause I definitely have in my practice, like parents don't offer that information, but when I, you know, maybe they'll mention something and I'll validate that and say, yeah, I've had lots of families who have had success, um, you know, with a gluten-free casein-free diet or, uh, uh, you know, low glutamate diet or, you know, all of these different diets. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, have you experienced that like parents feel judged because of the like dietary things? Yeah, I see that all the time and, um, it's disappointing, um, because there's so much to say about diet and it really does help so many people. I mean, my practice is living proof of that. And, um, I think that there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And I also think that there's not enough education. Oftentimes the narrative that I hear is that, um, you know, somebody is trying a diet that is really working for their kid. And then, you know, their physician or whoever will say, Oh, what are you doing? You know, this is really great. He's doing really well. And they'll say what they're doing. Um, and then they'll go, oh, that can't be it, or that's not it, or diet doesn't play a role and all this. And they just feel so discouraged. And I just think there's not enough education. Uh, there's healthcare providers as well around nutrition and how it really can help these kiddos. And I think, um, you know, the online space too can be helpful, but it also can be really hurtful because there are a billion different people saying, hey, you should do this, this, and this. It really worked for my child. But again, it doesn't work for everybody. And so I think a lot of the parents that are coming in on my caseload are just like, I am so confused because I have so many people telling me a billion different things and I just don't know what's right and I don't know what's true and I don't want to know what's backed in science. And, you know, the research with autism and nutrition is still developing. I mean, it's based in the past, you know, past 20 years. And so there's still a lot of work to go. And so a lot of things we need to test clinically, you know, how is this diet going to work for this child whose results come back? you know, this way. And so it's a lot of um, personal research that we can do too, but also, you know, reading the literature out there and what it does say, you know, is so important to back everything that we're doing with science, you know, as healthcare providers, that's our job is Mm -hmm. to um, have a research-based practice. Absolutely. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. You know, there's so many areas, both in your field and my field, where we need more research. We definitely need more research. Um, But until then, we can use the research that we have, do the best that we can, um, individualize our practice to help, you know, individual 
kids and families. Um, so I'm just really excited that you were able to come on today, Britton. And um, let me ask you this. How can people work with you if they want to work with you remotely? Because we yes, have lots of so- listeners who potentially <laughs> are like, oh my gosh, Britton, she can help with my picky eater. <laughs> yes. So um, I will say, and um, so I do everything virtually. Um, there are some states that don't allow me to work virtually. I have to have a state-specific license. Um, many states, however, do accept my license that I do have. So if you're interested in getting services, I have all of that information on my website. Um, I have an, an, I, a majority of states I'm able to work in. Um, I'm in California, so California is a massive state too. So I have many, many clients here. Um, but definitely reach out if it's something that you're interested in and, and I can help you find out if your state is compatible with my services. And my latest release is a six-month biomedical program. And so what we're doing through that is doing many different biomedical tests. So um, through urine, stool, blood, I mean, we're, we're doing the whole shebang. We're testing to see what's going on in there and how can we best serve your child with lifestyle changes, diet changes, and supplements. And, um, and so it's really important for us to do that. And through the six-month biomedical program, we can do all of those different tests. Most of them you can actually do from home. Some of them um, you will go to a local phlebotomist and get those drawn. And um, from there, the results are sent to me and we go over all of those together throughout the six months. So it's accountability that you're getting. It's um, lab results that we're reviewing together over video calls. And it's a lot of support through your lifestyle change because when you're changing your lifestyle for your child with autism, it's a lot and it's easy to get overwhelmed. So um, I'm essentially in your back pocket for six months. So um, I would definitely recommend if that sounds like something that you're interested in or you have a client that you really think would benefit from that, you can go online to my website and apply for the six-month program. Um, and for listeners um, or clients of listeners, if you want to pass down the discount code, um, I can offer $500 off my package for all Talking With Tech listeners. So um, you can just use the promo code Talking With Tech. Thank you so much. Our listeners are very appreciative of that. And I have to say, um, so we share clients, Britain, which is amazing because mm-hmm. I've seen improvements in the clients that you know we work on with together. But I also have worked with Britain personally. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not I, I don't have autism, <laughs> but <laughs> she has helped me get to the bottom of a lot of health things that I've been um struggling with. So um I definitely would take advantage of that offer. And I thank you again so much, Britain, for coming on and sharing your your expertise. Um, I think it's really valuable for our listeners to hear a different approach, um, and especially our parents who are listening listening, um, who do have children with autism, I think that your resources um, and sharing your knowledge has been incredibly valuable. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Britton Coleman. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.